The bloke goes, who are you? And he goes, I'm ScoMo. Aren't you always a bit suspicious of people who call themselves by their nicknames? It's the only way you were going to get good women to step up because the excuse will always be, yeah, we'd love to get a woman uh, candidate, but there just aren't any good women. I don't need a man to tell me that he's pulling out of the race because he thinks a woman should come in. The minute I looked at it, I did look at the big lips and feel a bit uncomfortable. I think the Herald Sun should have protected Mark Knight in this instance. Every year there's this same sort of moment of grief and I do wallow in it a bit because I think it's an acknowledgement of what happened and we can remember the several thousand people who were killed. Corrie, you had a crack at activated almonds recently. What's your latest annoying food term? Ancient grains. (laughs) What the hell is an ancient grain? I love the way she doesn't care and she has a crack. She looks like a big dag, but, you know, who doesn't on the day floor? The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin for the Interchange Bench, first-class temporary and contract talent. Welcome, everybody, to episode 54 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson, and I'm here with my dear friend, the glamorous... The beautiful Corrie Perkins, the Jesus bookseller Lord, extraordinaire. Hi, Carol. Hello, Potties. It's a spring morning in Melbourne. Spring is upon us. Miss Jane's brought in poppies. I have a long list of apologies. We're going to dissect the Serena Williams controversy and the international offshoot that has been expanded, I guess, by the Herald Sun cartoonist Mark Knight. We're going to talk politics and what's going on in Wentworth, gender politics involved in both those issues, Corrie. And this morning we woke up to hear that Alexander Downer is a spy for the Clinton campaign. Anyway, we're not talking about that today, but I just, I I love Alexander Downer stories. Particularly (laughs) when they involve high heels. And you're very excited because you've got a great GLT. I have delved into the second book of a wonderful trilogy that I want to talk to you about. But before we start, Corrie, and thank you, of course, to our wonderful sponsor, The Interchange Bench, First Class Temporary and Contract Talent, a few apologies, Corrie. I was a little bit ungracious about your victory in the footy tipping last week, and I'm sorry. I just want to say that... You're you, apologising to me. I want to congratulate you for winning the footy tipping. And I shouldn't have said I'd had a bad year on the tipping. That was ungracious. In a week where Serena was so ungracious, I think I need to carry that mantle. I can feel Julia's influence in this apology somewhere. Absolutely not. <laughs> and we're going to talk about September 11 because Julia, my dear mother, was born on September 11, as was Clementine, my daughter. And September 11 has just been and gone and we had a wonderful birthday celebration. But it is a date. Seven, can it really be 17 years, Corrie? Yeah, and, and, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? And still there are memories everywhere, Caro, and the stories, reading the stories of, of um, the mem- memories of the people in the US who survived and so on, gosh, it brings a tear to your eye. Just hot off the um, back of my apology to you, uh, finals tips were interesting, weren't they, week one? <laughs> yeah, I thought you might mention that. I do owe you a bottle of champagne. So in our footy-tipping little podcast, we I did... got three and you got one. And the pies almost got me four. I was I was looking yeah, for a... that was a great match. What's but a four-game What's a four um, game hat trick? I don't think it exists. I was very confused by Geelong because I thought with their finals experience, they would really take it up to the demons and probably get over the line and not to be seen. They picked up their handbags and totted off back down to Cardinia Park. Anyway, I was... um I sat in front of the new Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, at the footy last week. We're going to talk about politicians at the footy in a minute, but one more apology. Thank you, Natalie Burke, for telling me that Martha Stewart Living magazine is still going. Someone told me it ended. Martha Stewart's living is living. 
Yeah, so th- this is wonderful news. I apologise to everyone. I haven't seen her on our local. Well, Corrie, get on to it. You're news the magazine agency. expert. <laughs> I, even get on to that not, one, Carol. I said it was gone. And look, we started it. We started a um, social media funeral with our reminiscence of the young doctors, thanks yes. to our friend Mary Clark. Um, and, and, Bun- and Bunny's the local hangout where Ugly Dave Gray used to be the bartender. And Jane Miller on Facebook said, Caro talking about Bunny's really took me back. Remember Ada at the kiosk? Gwen Plum. She, <laughs> she was the eyes and ears of that hospital. The doctors and nurses had such hectic social lives, it's surprising they had time for medicine. That's what we thought. That is hilarious. But Caro, if you look at the little cast list, which I did because I had nothing else to do on the weekend, of young, young doctors, what a stellar lineup of Australian acting talent. Cornelia Francis, Gwen Plum, of course, Rebecca Gilling, whatever happened to her, Paula Duncan, Linda Stoner, Peter Tapano, Russell Crowe, who Miss Jane thinks was about 12, probably had a walk-on part. Yes, Do you remember Russell Crowe in The Young Doctors? No, I don't remember him in The Young Doctors. Michelle Davis said it was at that time that the show was on. She was doing her nursing training at St V's and a new cafe opened next door at the private hospital. We were so excited to have an alternative to the hospital cafe, we nicknamed it Bunnies, (laughs) which was, was widely known as that for the next 20 years. Somebody build me a Bunnies, if not in my street. In my suburb. We also talked about our favourite places in beautiful Adelaide. So hello to all our Adelaide podcast listeners, including Anna Davies and Titchy Boy 66 who touched base via the Caro and Corrie Instagram account, and Claire Noble, who said, I'm living in wonderful Adelaide. Listen to the uh, latest podcast, Driving Home. Love it. So thank you to all of that. Now, we love getting your feedback, of course. We're here thanks to the Interchange Bench. If your business needs new players... Pick them up from the Interchange Bench, the leading provider of temporary and contract talent. See interchangebench.com.au for talent so good you wish you could keep them. Visit the Interchange Bench. I I think we need a couple of Interchange Bench people in our lives, Carol. I don't know about you, but this is the busiest September I can remember on record. Yeah. I I don't know whether I'm Martha or Martha, but I was watching the telly the other night watching the footy, and who should pop up on my screen but Caroline Wilson and Brendan Donoghue sitting in front of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Yeah, well, that was, that w- it was interesting on many levels. It was, did he have he, a meat pie? No, he had a beer, though. And to another observation, he did stay to the end of the game. Which did was he understand, someone, unlike Malcolm, does he understand the rules? Well, no. Ma- I mean, Malcolm made a complete gig of himself when he tried to talk about Australian rules football, particularly at that launch in China last year, or the, maybe it was a year before it. No, it was last year. Anyway, um, but I remember it, it evoked memories, Corrie, of Collingwood's 1990 premiership and going to the celebrations afterwards. All, everyone who'd been president, everyone who'd been involved was there, including your friend Ronald McDonald. But Paul Keating was there. Because remember for a brief time, Paul Keating became a Collingwood supporter. I think was, he was number one for a minute. He became their number one member. And I remember walking up to him with Mike Sheehan and saying, oh, what did you think of the game? And he said, my heart was in my mouth. And you know when you just go, you are the most insincere. I, you know, I loved Paul Keating for a lot of his speeches and some of his more wittier remarks. I know some people loathed him. I thought he was an unbelievably good Prime Minister on several levels and a great treasurer. But <laughs> Gee, he was insincere about well, the pies. He didn't. I don't think he as if your heart was football. ever in your mouth. The game was always was all, was over by half. So were you impressed by Scott? Well, look, he was certainly Sorry, a man of Mr. the people, Morrison. and um, he he introduced himself to a Geelong fan outside the MCG um, the next day as Scomo. <laughs> um, the bloke goes, "Who are you?" And he goes, "I'm Scomo." Aren't you always a bit suspicious of people who call themselves by their nicknames? Yes, and that whole sort of. ScoMo thing, I find 
a bit yeah weird. Anyway, but I although my daughter Rose's DJ name was Rodo, so <laughs> but she's Rose Donahue. So she doesn't walk up to people and say hi, I'm Rodo. No, she certainly does not. The interesting thing about it was Gillan McLaughlin opened the. Uh, night with his, he makes a speech before every final, and he opened this one first final. It was a Thursday night Richmond Hawthorne game. Yes, bottle of champagnes in the mail. I'm sure, Corrie. He opened it by saying, um, cracking a joke about, "I'm sorry, I put, we put this game on a Thursday night. It's a school night, and I of all people know how hard it is to good to get good babysitters." So there was a bit oh. of an au pair gag. I gather he cracked the same gag in Sydney on the Saturday. So. AF, default position by the AFL, if you're in a pickle, make a joke of it, and it always works. Oh, I don't know about that. Last year at the start of the finals, and it was also a Richmond game, it was um, it was Richmond-Geelong, Gillan McLaughlin said, if Richmond win the premiership, I'm taking all of next year off, and even Caroline Wilson won't have a go at me for taking holidays. Because remember, he famously yes. went to France <laughs> after, after the Love Rat um, <laughs> scandal. Anyway, so there was also... Um, Dreamtime game is a classic one for politicians. They all come because this is a very politically sensitive and very a great time to be seen because of Indigenous politics, of course. And that was a famous night Malcolm Turnbull last year sat on his mobile phone during all of the speeches. Which we talked about in, the, in an earlier podcast. We were both we, mortified. Mortified. And um, Brendan and I once sat with Mark Abib in one of those Dreamtime games and for a half and had a long chat to him about footy and explained a lot of stuff to him. But it's just funny, politicians who get it and those who don't. Um, who came doing? I was doing Offsiders on Sunday and Josh Frydenberg, the new treasurer, who I'd seen three or four weeks earlier looking very down in the dumps because they were trying to sell he's, the carbon policy. But also he's a Melbourne uh, – uh, He's a, he's a Melbourne tragic. Yeah, but a Melbourne boy, I was going to say. Yes. So he gets footy through and through. Yes, and Julie Bishop always comes in and wants to talk about West Coast because, of course, she was on their board. But some of them are just – anyway, it was interesting that Scott Morrison sat with – alongside the AFL chairman, Richard Goida, West Farmers boss, and not with Gillan McLaughlin, probably keep away from Gillan at the moment, given... <laughs> Nanny gate issues. Given the Peter Dutton. would be the perfect, perfect photograph. But you, you've sat with... You must have sat with politicians. Well, look, the, only, the one that comes to memory, Caro, was actually when I was at the Australian a few years ago uh, as their national arts writer, and I received a call from my fizz in at, at Canberra, in Peter Garrett, who was in Arts Minister's office. And um, he said, would you like to join us at the footy on Saturday night? Peter's coming down for the reconciliation round. So we had a lovely dinner. Of course dinner. he was. And then we sat together and with Ben, who was his media advisor, and myself and Peter, and talked about everything other than... It's quite funny, actually, to be at the footy, not talking about footy, but talking about arts policy. And then at heart, just before half time, he said, oh, look, excuse me, I've just got to go down and do a bit of a performance. I'll be back later. And that's when he walked onto the field with Paul Kelly and sang, from little things, big things grow, and then came back and we proceeded to watch the game. But did he? That would have been great. But did he understand the game? No, not really. No. Not I mean, really. That's fair we were, enough. But he was, he was uh, from memory, he was very upfront about that and, yes. and asked asked. You know important questions about the game, but also you know who was doing well at the, that in during the season, and who did I barrack for, and why did I barrack for Hawthorne, and all this sort of thing. So you can get to Sydney if you leave Melbourne early morning by early afternoon, and yet it's like two foreign countries. And, and then the division is sport, really, isn't it? It is indeed. And I hear the NRL is um, your friend Roy Masters is 
jumping up and down about the NRL uh, crowds are bigger than the AFL. No, the crowds are much smaller, but the TV ratings oh, I are, are bigger, which is interesting. That's it is a, interesting. They, we um, must talk about that in the more, next couple of more weeks, people Caroline. Are watching it, but you know, the, the crowd. I mean, the the final at Sydney had fifty or high forties, sorry, forty thousand, forty thousand Sydney GWS last Saturday. Next door at the Sydney Stadium where the NRL final was on, there were 25 and they thought that was a great crowd. Mm, it's interesting, I mean, isn't it? it? It's very interesting. But speaking of Sydney and politics and gender, which we're going to get on to, Wentworth, Corrie. Yeah, look, I'm really interested ScoMo's in ScoMo's first big challenge. <laughs> no, we're not going to call him ScoMo. No, I, well, I think actually the Wagga Wagga by-election on the weekend was an interesting one for uh, New South Wales and the Liberal Party, uh, an, indep- an independent um, won the seat and good on you, Dr Joe McGurr. Uh, I think he'll be a terrific a member of parliament, actually. I'm really impressed by the things he's been saying. But all eyes are now on Wentworth, Caro, and particularly uh, after Andrew Bragg, who was the Liberal front front runner, I guess, for pre-selection, pulled out of the race because he thinks a woman should be appointed. And he said, my withdrawal can pave the way. Well, I am sorry, that is such a sexist move. Who's tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, mate, we really need to get some more women in? What, you know, ha- There's nothing wrong with affirmative action, though, is there? I mean, that's the only way women seem to get anywhere in this world. That's how they got into the MCC. That's- I, don't need a, I don't need a man to tell me that he's pulling out of the race because he thinks a woman should come in. You know, in other words, in brackets, other I way. would win. I would win if I didn't pull out of the race. So I'm withdrawing myself from the race. I do agree with Janet Albrechtson, which again is slightly unusual for me. I'm agreeing with her more and more in recent times. She is the conservative uh, columnist for The Australian. But she and doesn't support, she never supports positive discrimination. Well, she doesn't. And it's interesting, Carol, I often think about where do I stand on this issue? I'm never really sure. And the question for Wentworth, I guess, is should women be fast-tracked into that seat so therefore the Liberal Party will have uh, a greater gender diversity around the Cabinet table? And I'm, I do believe in a meritocracy. I do think the best person with the best talents is the one for the job. I'm never sure how I feel about positive discrimination. I am a big fan of Emily's list. But I'm, I'm confused on this. I know you're a real what you, you I mean, are I, a real um, this, fan of it. This is I, I never used to be, but over the years, Corrie, it's the only way. I uh, classic example: Channel Seven recently and Fox Footy. Recent, it's not Fox Footy. Fox Sports recently announced their lineup for the cricket coverage because, of course, you know, in massive sporting changes, media changes, Channel Seven have now got the cricket, and there were so many women in that lineup, and it was just so wonderful. Well, I found out. The other day, I think there was something written up about it in the Herald Sun, that the Cricket Australia had written into Channel 7's contract that there had to be a woman broadcasting on the cricket coverage this summer for 50% of the time every day. I am a full supporter of but that that's sort the of same, thing. But that's the same thing, isn't it? It's the only way you are going to get good women to step up because the excuse will always be, yeah, we'd love to get a woman uh, candidate, but there just aren't any good women. Well, oh, that's I, not I under- true. I, I, look, I understand that. And I think at the very beginning of any process, whether you're choosing a board for a, a private company or a public company or whether it's a board for a footy club or whether it's a candidate for Wentworth, you do, you know, you need some positive discrimination because you are actually redressing 2,000 years of imbalance. Exactly. However, there has to be a shift in people's attitudes, people in positions of power who are choosing these candidates. They need to stop looking at um, the 40 or 50-something 
white bloke. So it's not just women here who are often discriminated. It's often people are discriminated because of their colour or their race. But we need to get people thinking, look, I'm looking at all of these candidates equally. So at what point are we going to – What? when do we get to that point? Is it when we have more women? We're nowhere near that in, point now, Corrie. So we need to have positive discrimination. Well, I hope the right people are getting through for that. Anyway, I hope the right people are getting through for the right jobs. And But I did not need Andrew Bragg telling me that he was stepping aside because he felt he should give a woman a chance. He's just assuming he's going to get the job. He's assuming he's the best candidate. I found it quite sexist. We should get my nephew, Sam Faye, in, who is now the vice president of the Libs in um, Wentworth, <laughs> which is quite extraordinary given how old he is and the work he's been doing. I mean, he's, he's Sam's, fantastic. Sam's about 28, isn't he? 27. Oh, mover and shaker. He could be a future prime minister, Caroline. Um, so do you think the NCP administration swept, swept the claims of Catherine Marriott's under the carpet. Oh, Caro, this is just so terrible. So as everybody knows, and, you know, dare I say, it gave the papers over the weekend another opportunity to use a photograph of Barnaby with his big hat on, trying to look like some sort of handsome, you know, farmer wants a wife kind of candidate here. (laughs) What's happened is that the West Australian farmer, Catherine Marriott, made a complaint back in February uh, about uh, sexual harassment allegations and she levelled them directly at the then leader, Barnaby Joyce. And so there has been an eight-month investigation by the party and they have found insufficient evidence. Catherine Marriott is devastated by this because she, it's a kind of, it's one of those situations he said, she said. She made three uh, trips to the East Coast at her own expense to meet with the party. She went through in detailed information, which I can only imagine was uh, correct because she seems like a very honest person and she's, she's clearly fired up enough to, become, you know, to go public with this or at least to go to a party. And they've dismissed it saying they don't have enough evidence. I don't understand it. I really don't. And she is extremely disappointed. And she has said she's not surprised at the result because the party has no plans for how to handle a sexual harassment complaint against an MP. Come on, Australia, corporate Australia, government Australia, political parties, get with the program and start put in place a proper sexual harassment complaints avenue for staff so staff can feel comfortable and feel that they're being listened to. Women in federal and state politics. Wow, it, isn't it, it amazing? It, it, it's, it's a hotbed. And... Let's let's move and I, on. To and it. I wish I wish somebody would do the big number. Like we need Michael Gordon. We need somebody who's that big, uh, uh, respected political journalist who has an amazing contact book who can put all of this together, name names, draw on anecdotes. And I'd examples. love to hear Michelle Grattan on it. Anyway, let's. Mo- well, there's a few I'd love to hear on it, but let's move on. While to- we're on sexism, Caro, <laughs> this has become a gender issue. Um, it began as a poor sportsmanship issue, which I believe has been lost. There has been so many layers to this story. Let's have a listen, a brief listen to Serena Williams's press conference over the weekend. I've seen other men call other umpires several things, and I'm here fighting for women's rights and for women's equality. For me, it blows my mind, but I'm going to continue to, to fight for women and to fight for us to have equal, like Courtney should be able to take her shirt off without getting a fine. Like this is outrageous, you know, and I just feel like the fact that I have to go through this is just an example for the next person that has emotions and that want to express themselves and they want to be a strong woman and they're going to be allowed to do that because of today. Maybe it didn't work out for me, but it's going to work out for the next person. Thank you, everyone. 
Note oh, the applause of I'm the sycophantic journos in the press conference. I was going to say, when did journalists become part of the story? Oh, well, you know, Serena Williams is a superstar in that in New York and on that tennis court, and this is where she tends to lose her wick. You know, in 2009, she threatened to ram a ball down the effing throat of the umpire who caught her, who foot faulted her, and they'd find her 10 grand, which I just still feel was the most ridiculous and, you know, feather duster response. Anyway, look, the role of the umpire has has become a massive talking point here. The backlash, it began as a shocking case of poor sportsmanship. That was to turn it into a gender issue. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the name Naomi Osaka, who everyone, you know, has virtually forgotten about now. Even in the Mark Knight cartoon we're going to talk about in a tick, you know, she was reduced to a much smaller, which was part of the, that was the story he was trying to tell. But, I mean, he's been pilloried for making her look more white than she actually is, the poor victim white woman, which she was not. But anyway, Serena spat the dummy, lost her temper, behaved appallingly, has done it before took away one of the great, what should have been a great moment for Japan's first ever Grand Slam champion at the US Open. She made it all about her. It is true that Carlos Ramos has not called men for coach. I mean, this coaching in the stands is, a, is an issue. It, it, it shouldn't be, it's, it's not cheating. He said he called her a cheat. He never called her a cheat. He called her coach for coaching, which he admitted he did. It doesn't happen to the men. Nadal is absolutely notorious for it with his coach. But the point is her coach was giving her instructions and she behaved so stupidly. She was losing. She only compounded it. She ended up losing a game. We need to remember that the umpire did not call her a cheat. No, but he, he said, you've, you've been coached. Yes, but, you're going to lose a... a you're gonna, but you're she, gonna lose she completely overreacted. And it's actually Team Williams that is being uh, fined then or being um, not fined. Um, Penalised. The, the crowd were booing the poor old Naomi. And, you know, Serena did tell them to stop booing her in the presentation. Oh, but it was one of the most sake. awkward, dreadful presentations I've ever seen. And, and Serena, we'll get through this. No, there's nothing to get through. Just say, you're all behaving really badly. This is a great winner. She's won a great she's, – she's put in a fantastic effort. She's only 20. She's got a huge future. Let's all applaud her. her. Well, Pete watched the match, my husband, and he said the first set, Naomi was clearly – the stronger contender, clearly. So everyone from J.K. Rowling down has had a, a really vicious go at Mark Knight, the Herald Sun cartoonist who we both know, who does the you know now does the grand final famous cartoon that you know. Well, I've got one of them. Wig, so, yeah, wigs. That, one. that used to be wigs. The point is, I, I didn't see the cartoon until I knew about the furor. It depicts a big, rather grotesque black woman in a bizarre tennis outfit, all true. Um, certainly the outfit, her outfits are bizarre. It could be interpreted as a, tribal, as a tribal pose too. Well, it could the, be. The analysis, the analyses have gone insane. The Herald Sun says it's political correctness gone mad. The front page editorial the next day was a plethora of Mark Knight cartoons sending up everyone from Donald Trump to Bob Hawke. To, I mean, you name it, he was sending them up. But the minute I looked at it, I did look at the big lips and feel a bit uncomfortable, I've got to say. And I think the Herald Sun should have protected Mark Knight in this, this instance. I'm not saying he's racist. I'm not saying he's anti-women. But on the back of a cartoon he did a few weeks ago of a Victorian state politician when he was banning the Sky News and the railway lines and there were African gangs in the corner, which was just completely irrelevant and really towing the company line, I felt, 
um, for the Heralds and News Limited in that instance. I don't know why they somebody, Damon Johnson or somebody senior, didn't think this could get a bit out of control. Well, maybe they wanted the publicity. No, I don't think so. Well, you never know. And, you know, there's nothing like a controversial cartoon to sell a few papers. Look, I mean, Bill Lake, bless his um, dearly departed heart, was frequently, you know, in the news and on Media Watch for inappropriateness. Oh, did Bill do the one of the Aboriginal uh, not knowing the child? Yep. Look, I understand that, but I just – you can understand why internationally and certainly in America there would be a backlash here. You can – because of the history – and this is – I know he – it's not up to Mark Knight necessarily to worry about the history of the way African-Americans have been depicted in such pictures, but they were. And the whole Jim Crow argument resonates not with us – but with Americans, and I, I just I think I but, think I think editors should protect their journos. But is and Mark, their but is Mark Knight as a cartoonist for the Herald Sun? Is he actually appealing to his local audience, or should he always be aware of an international audience? As you as you said, well, enormous it, sensitivities in media the US. Go, for media goes reasons. everywhere now. Goes everywhere. I mean, obviously it does. And this has become. I think they had to turn off his social media on Monday, on Tuesday night because he was receiving so much. He would have a lot negative. of trolls. But Caro, I'm Everyone's a big, I'm a big defender defense, of cartoon, but... uh, cartooning as an art form, and oh, of course, and I would hate to see it sanitised in any shape, way, or form. I really would. I'd hate, I'd hate the cartoonists of Australia to be sitting there second guessing what the entire world's population are thinking about what they're about to do. I have to point potties to Greg. But don't you Greg, think when Greg, it's racial, you've got to be a little bit more? Well, you've got to be a bit more aware. Yes, and I'm not saying whether I agree with this. Cartoon or not. Remember Joan Kerner in the polka dot dress? Yes. Which she never actually wore, but she became this sort of chubby. It's a bit sort different. It's a bit different, though, to a racial slur, if indeed. Well, this well, is that, well that was I'm sexist. not sure. And yeah. When um, it's women, see, Jacinta Allen, the one he did about the you know Victorian politician and the African gangs, which was a political statement, which some of us do feel a bit sensitive about. Jacinta Allen is, is a slim, attractive woman. And I'd say that about a man. She was depicted as a a butch-looking sort of big thighs. It, it was not the way she looked. And because she was a woman, you immediately go, oh. You immediately, it, just, it just makes you twitch a bit when you see it. Now, if it's, it's quite a, man, a few, Quite a few male politicians he doesn't make look oh, very attractive. I know that. Donald I know Trump, that. case in but point. But I'm just saying my first reaction when I saw Serena in the big lips. I would just like potties to – She did look to, a bit if they, animalistic. If they, miss, if they miss Greg Baum's uh, article in The Age – from the 10th of September, I urge you to read it about this. He said there were all sorts of losers in this in this US Open women's final. Serena Williams was a loser. Motherhood was a loser because she used that old line. Poor Naomi Osaka was uh, a loser, an innocent loser. Umpire Carlos Ramos was a loser. Tennis lost. It's such a great, it's such a great article here. It's a wonderful it, it, writer. It, it was a great column. And um, Chris Judd said to me he was surprised that Greg Bourne was actually defending Serena. But I don't think he was no, he defending wasn't. Serena no, no. at all. I, I was interested in the project because he on said, Channel he, 10 so, on Monday night were defending her. I mean, there was a backlash against the backlash. It was quite – there's always, isn't there? But I, I get really angry when I heard that press conference. So the first thing that really annoyed me in the, when she was talking to the crowd, well, the, the, um, the anchor, the host of it, the man standing up there on the podium, did not tell – he did not wrestle control of that event. He's in charge. He's the MC. He should have said, could everybody please be quiet? He just stood there and let them roar. Okay. Then Serena says, uh, look, you know, I, I just think we should all, you know, we should all move on and, and 
no, sorry. And then in the press conference, the media clapping. I'm I'm so tired of media taking a stand one way or the other in a public place like that. Corrie, this is American media. Now, their golf golf commentators and writers have overlooked some of the most appalling behaviour on the golf course. They never call it out when they're commentating. The journos for years covered up some of Tiger Woods' really bad sporting antics and chucking clubs and the stuff he used to do because everybody loved Tiger. Mm. I mean, they're, uh, in awe, they're in awe of their subject and when journalists become that, whether they're political writers, whether they're footy reporters, and Carol, you and I over the years have seen many football reporters fall in love with a team or a player and go, or a coach and go soft on them, or whether they're covering the US Open. You know, you need to be impartial, guys, impartial and the, not cheer the, somebody at a press conference. Sorry. And, and I just wanted to say that when Serena said, you know, like sexism and played the, you know, the gender card, it waters down for me and further confuses what real sexism is. You, oh, and I, I you and I have had smatterings of it during our career working in a male-dominated environment. There are women every day who go to work and they, are, they live a difficult and hard professional life because there's sexism in the workplace. But if it's true that she was called out for coaching when men aren't, then there's a way to attack that. And, yes. And, and, and that was not the way. No. Just a line from an investigative reporters and editors conference I attended in um, New Orleans many years ago in the 90s. One of the speakers, I think it was Pete Hamill, who was just an absolute superstar, New York mm. journalist, said... Um, he had a real crack at editors saying they weren't worth a, a blemish on the anatomy part of a, a, a journo. But he said that the American golf media were the most sycophantic group of journos he's ever met. Hell, their lifetime ambition is to have lunch with Freddie Couples. It was the funniest line. <laughs> anyway, that's Serena. It is, it is there, but that's exactly what it is, that one of these stars will acknowledge them. We've seen, We've covered Hollywood you know, famous people, Carol, you and I have covered coming to a media conference and everybody goes soft. No, I remember going to interview Bert Bacharach, of all people, right? Bert Bacharach. And people were stunned. Like the, the, most of the people were a bit older than me. But the entire crowd of journos who'd gathered for this press conference were in awe. And, you know, they asked questions like, oh, what's your favourite song that you've ever produced and do you still see Dionne Warwick? And oh, that's fair. I would have and asked I just, too. And I put my hand up and said, is your music still relevant today? You know, oh, it wasn't exactly a, you know, heart-stopping moment. But, but you know, someone had to ask the tough stuff. Corey, that's hardly, you know. <laughs> it's big in my life. I love Bert Beckerick. I know, but it's Anyway, uh, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. It's a, it's a good question, but it's hardly, you know. No, you want an articulate answer. You want a good answer. You want to get underneath all the fluff and get to the real person, don't you? Yes, At least but what I, that used to be like, Carol. Like You're probably there cheering, are you? I'd like to know if he's when still When Mr thought, Hardwick gives his press conference, oh, please, you, you know, know in the last days, you're there going, yay. I would like, no, I would like to hear what his favourite song is. Anyway. September uh, 11. Can we I just all say, remember, we all remember where we were, don't we? Can I just say we? happy birthday to Clem and Julia for yesterday and how their, how their birth date has forever been linked with this terrible terrible tragedy in the Well, US. it was funny because the night it happened, obviously it was night time for us and it wasn't their birthday. Their birthday was... Yes, the day before. Finished. Yeah. Well, no, it was it was over, wasn't it? Cause yes, it, so it yeah. happened in the morning of September 11 there, so it yeah. was... It was late at yes. night in Australia. And you were on television, I think. Yeah, you we, rang me from the studio. No, I rang you from the Botanical Hotel because we used to film Talking Footy nearby in South Melbourne at Channel 7 and we'd go back and have a drink at the Botanical Hotel in a previous... Um, incarnation opposite the Botanic 
botanic gardens. Mm, thank you. Even though it's a botanical hotel, Corrie, because we used to see the show, which was obviously on delay. And one of the you went back to the pub and watched yourselves well, the on te- television. No, we didn't really. We just had a drink, but it was Talk on. Talk about vain. No, no, but it was on TV. It was just up on the screen. We didn't sit there and watch and then ourselves. Did you sign autographs with people no, the, going, "Oh, look, you're up there, and here you are." There was hardly ever anyone else there, but the but the volume was down and. They broke into the coverage on, I think maybe it was even on Channel 9 we were watching or anyway, all the coverages broke into and I think Talking Footy was the last one to break into the coverage and whatever happened, our show ended and they went straight to what was going on in America. And I remember we all just sat there thinking, you know, the world has changed forever and uh, me ringing home and ringing ringing my mum and ringing my brother-in-law in Sydney who had friends who were working in the Twin Towers ringing you and just, I mean, you know, well, every, I mean, you know, we can't even begin to imagine what a, it must have Australia, been like in In Australia, the world is divided, isn't it, between those who stayed up and watched and those who woke up the next morning. Yeah. And when you rang I me, rang you and yeah, told you to get up yeah. and start watching. Well, from memory, I just watched Sex in the City, although I could be wrong about that. And I was cleaning my teeth and the phone rang and it was you saying, turn the television on quick, um, New York's under attack. And... So I was, uh, I can't remember what my job was at the time at the age, some sort of editor. So I just um, started writing, uh, no, there was no laptop or anything, so I did it as notes, a time frame, you know, one twenty-seven, one forty-seven, everything, which actually the next day when the age was piecing together how it all unfolded was rather helpful. But I stayed up till 7 o'clock in the morning and if you can remember, Essendon was in the finals and Maddie Lloyd, Matthew Lloyd was up against the tribunal which had heard that night. And I woke, woke the children up, the two older ones, to say, look, something terrible's happened, everything's okay but you need to come and watch the news before you go to school. And I woke Will up and he, I said, there's something awful's happened, everything's okay but something awful. And he said, did Maddie Lloyd get two weeks? <laughs> I remember talking to Lee Matthews the next day. He was co- the coach of Brisbane, who went on to win the premiership that year. And he did. He he said at the end, something it just footy doesn't seem as important today as it did yesterday. So true. And it was. Um, but Carol, anyway, I was just, I was really uh, sort of rocked uh, again, touched by the uh, various services, not touched by what Donald Trump said in his statement today or yesterday. But uh, of all the different uh, recollections, as I said, people who lost loved ones, every year there's this same sort of um, moment of grief. And I do wallow in it a bit because I think it's an acknowledgement of what happened and we can remember the several thousand people who were killed. But I was quite surprised to read that in a New York lab somewhere, there is a team of forensic biologists who are still working to identify the remains of people. And there are a few hundred people who still have nothing has ever been found of them. So these, the, the analysts are still looking at little particles of dust and so on, trying to do DNA matches. What an amazing, huge, complex research project that is. It, it changed everyone's views of Islam forever and empowered a, a lot of you know, Muslim haters who continued to, you know, who now just put everyone from that part of the world or that particular belief, culture, religion into one, lump them into one, which is, you know, so many tragedies, obviously. The worst tragedies are all those people who went to work and never came home. But going there now, and I've been there a couple of times, three times. I haven't. So what's the memorial like? Does it work as a space? It's unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the first time I went, it was ground zero and it was just rubble and you walked around it and then the next time they'd started building the museum and now the museum is finished. And it is one of, I hate to say this, 
I mean, to say it's a, it's a great tourist attraction sounds so glib and stupid, but it is one of the more profoundly moving experiences to go in there and see the way they've done it. I mean, it technically it's brilliant and the way that the timelines, the memorials to the people who died, the way people move around in this very peaceful, ordered, but quite emotional way, it is, it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful memorial. It yes. really is. It, it is just, there was a little chapel nearby the first time we went, which was where a lot of the workers went and where a lot of schools still went and had little private memorials too. And, and that is no longer a big part of it. But that was early on, that was a place you went to grieve. Now you just walk into this amazing structure. And no, they've done it. They've done it absolutely beautifully. A, and they, a place for contemplation. It oh, is. Well, I would like to go there. But technically, tech, in terms of technology, it's unbelievable too. And, and some of the things they have found are quite remarkable. Well, while we're on the US, Caro, I think your crush of the week uh, is is connected to the US. And I would just like to say uh, thank you to the Interchange Bench for our crush of the week segment. We love the work you do, recruiting the best staff for the inter- with the Interchange Bench. Don't forget to get in touch with them if you need uh, help in your workplace or, in fact, if you're looking for a part-time job. Who's your crush? Well, Bob Woodward doesn't need to worry about getting a job. He has – we've talked about a lot of books about the Trump administration and there have been some unbelievable literature about how Hillary lost, how Trump won, what Trump's been doing. But it, it's like, you know – Aside everybody, the big dogs back in town. And, and I really think the fact that Bob Woodward, who has now launched a national book tour, and he's, it, it's going to be a world book tour, I guess, The book for is Fear. called Fear. It's, it's had six reprints already. It comes out today, and I think it will be in my bookshop today or tomorrow. So this is basically an unbelievable dissection of what has really been going on in the White House. He has got so many aides and staffers and Donald Trump were members of the Republican Party on tape. He's taped every single interview, including a conversation on phone he had with Donald Trump, which Jared Henderson was very unimpressed about Bob's behaviour on Insiders last Sunday. But I think he's done an unbelievable job. I mean, some he's of the... In, he's in his 70s and he hasn't lost his taste for the good story, has he? Well, well I think... And it's, shining light in it, dark corners. Hopefully it is a triumph for journalism that Bob Woodward has come back and done this book. The the revelations involving Gary Conn and, you know, telling him basically to print money, you know, when, when there's a debt, you just borrow more money, don't you? I mean, the total lack of understanding about national debt, running it like a, like his business, like his some of his very dubious businesses. The, um, the, the uh, document that was removed from his desk, which was going to end the entire trade agreement with Korea. I mean, Gary Conn's backing off. They're all backing off now and saying the book didn't depict what they really said, but he's Bob, got them Bob all does it, Bob, And Bob doesn't lie. Uh, if anybody is uh, interested in hearing a really good interview with Bob Woodward, who's on with Rachel Maddow, it's uh, the Rachel Maddow Show. It's a podcast and I think it gets dropped uh, on the 12th of or 13th of September, which is actually today as we're recording. So have a listen to that. So everyone. Bob Woodward, who obviously with Carl Bernstein wrote All the President's Men and broke the story of the Watergate scandal for the uh, Washington Post, just quickly, he wrote a book about John Belushi called Wired. And it was all about the last days of John Belushi, the American film star who died of a drug overdose. And it was a quite a boring book because it just—it was a lot of drug deals and when he took this and when he did that. But so many people in Hollywood spoke to Bob Woodward, 
And someone in one of the reviews said everyone thought they were talking to Robert Redford because they'd seen all the president's men. And maybe there was a bit of that this time around too. Well, I don't know, but he's always been – he's been good friends with Donald Trump for years, so I think that friendship's over. I think that's a very good call for Crush of the Week. And thank you, Interchange Bench. And, Caro, our friend Anita, who's connected with the Interchange Bench, sent me this during the week, which is job roles. Uh, I think this is a day or two old, this ad. Um, And this is what the Interchange Bench is all about – We are looking for a part-time HR coordinator, a part-time payroll officer, a full-time purchasing officer, and our business is in the Melbourne CBD southeastern suburbs. Are you interested? Contact us on 1800iBench. There you go. There are three good jobs there. Thank you, Interchange Maybe one of our unemployed children could take one of those jobs. Now, I'm going to roll right along to BSF, and I'm doing the B. I'm doing the book this week. This is... A brilliant trilogy. I've only I'm halfway through the second one. It has divided our various book club friends and our various reading friends. Some people adore it. Some people didn't like it at all. I suspect some people didn't actually try that hard with the first one. It's called well, the first one is called My Brilliant Friends. This is the Neapolitan novels. The Neapolitan novels. They're by Elena Ferranti. Now I think you know. Because they're translated, sometimes, and you can tell they're translated when you're reading them, sometimes that can, it takes you a while to get into the, um, the groove of the writing. But this is a book about a friendship that begins in childhood. And at the beginning of the first one, and they do this with every book, the second one, the one I'm beginning now, is called The Story of a New Name. The third one is Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay. I cannot tell you how exciting it is to have three books to have got through the first one and know there are two more. The two friends are Alina and Lena, although Alina calls Lena Leela. So it's very you need to go back to the beginning That's where a bit they confusing. do Well well they, they give you the cast of characters at the start and I cannot tell you how many times I had to go back in the first one to the cast of characters and I'm doing it again with the story of a new name. It's set around Naples. It's set in Naples, sort of the the overtones of crime and the underworld and the mafia are there all the way through, although it's never actually articulated. I started the first one and I found all that too grim to go on. It, it is it is one of the more extraordinary novels I've ever read, My Brilliant well, Friend. Well, welcome to the panel, Carrie. You're about eight years late with this series. But... No, no. I read, well, I know I read My Brilliant Friend a while ago. But but I never I just never got around to reading the fin- second th- one. Do you think you'll do the other four, or the other three in the series? Of course. Oh. Well, I'm start. Well, I'm halfway through the second one, and I'm abs- the the story of these women and what happens to them and their families, and you know the ending of the first one. I won't say much except to say it involves a pair of shoes. It is just. I, I think they're absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, the first well, one was look, absolutely they, brilliant, and I'm loving the second they one. They still sell, and we're all still wondering who Elena Ferranti is. She's an, an anonymous, mysterious person. Really? Mm, we still don't know who she is. She has never done an interview. Caro, on to screen. The book's fantastic. On to screen, and I'd like to talk about a Netflix series, Queer Eye, which my daughter Coco put me onto. Do you remember years ago, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? Did you ever watch I that do. show? I do. I'm sorry, I've got to pick you up on something, and it's not going to. It won't last till next week. Just because a book's eight years old doesn't mean we can't read it. Do you no. want me to not review Pride and Prejudice? On this show, no, I know, but you're no, but you can't. We find an old book and love well, it. Your excitement is—it's is, not like um, films. Corey. Your excitement is commendable. 
but people have been talking about this series for a long time. But they've been arguing about it and now I'm reading it. Good. Okay, good. We might do War and Peace, Corrie. Are you going to say, well, gee, it's only taken you 100 years? <laughs> On to Queer Eye. So there's a new remake of Queer Eye for the straight guy and it's just called Queer Eye and it uh, it was uh, the, the Netflix show. series was released in February this year and they've done two series since. And this, the premise of this is five gay guys with special expert uh, talents go into the home of a person who has sent them a letter or maybe their loved one has sent them a letter saying, my bloke or my girl or my friend or my sister or whoever needs a makeover. Their house is a dump. Their clothing's terrible. They've let their hair or their beard get get out of hand, including the women. Uh, they need a good to have a good hard look at themselves and we need your help. So the it's five a makeover blokes, show, isn't it? Really? It is. The five blokes, one's a food and wine expert, so helps with the cooking. One's a fashion expert. One's a culture expert. One's a design expert. And the other, Jonathan Van Ness, who's my favourite, is the grooming expert who actually turned up a couple of days ago at a you know, beautiful evening gown um, at, a, at an important television award, I think it was. Um, Who's the blonde one who came to the Melbourne Cup that year? Was it Carson? Oh, Car- Car- yeah, Carson. He was from yeah. the first series, yeah. yeah he, <laughs> Is he, isn't he in it's it twen- No, no, no. It's 20 years old, that series, Caro. So it's 18 years old, that series. So oh, we've well, got, they, we've they, got new got Younger new guys now. Younger oh. guys. And... And so, but interestingly, Caro, this is how the world has changed. When we first watched Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, when it when it um, debuted in two thousand and three, was very much about the gayness and the over the top and the ooh la la and these boys having these special, you know, subjects of interest. But now it's more just they are five guys who happen to be experts in their field and they just happen to be gay. So it's much more kind of um, more about the drama and uh, of the person they, whose house they come into and the makeover and how they respond as individuals, not at, not the emphasis being on their homosexuality, which is a very good thing. I would suggest this show as a family show. I would suggest probably the lowest age group would be 10 or 11, but sit there with the family and watch this show. It is hilarious. It's touching. One episode Coco and I watched, I was I had tears when the guy, propo- you know, it had the total makeover, proposed to his fiance Shannon at an outdoor cinema venue. Reality Got up TV on the. Oh, I love, I love a bit of that. Anyway, Queer Eye is on Netflix, and I urge everybody to have a look at it. That's and, green. Now, what about F for Food? Okay, this is the exciting part. I know everybody's waiting for Bob Woodward's book to arrive, but guess what dropped on Friday, Caro? Look what I'm holding up: Otter Lengi Simple so with a Yot- lemon on the front. So Yotam Otter. Lengi, who is the Israeli-born, now living in England, chef, uh, best known for his uh, shops in food shops and restaurants around London, including his signature store in Notting Hill. He has brought out another cookbook, and I think probably unless something uh, comes in in the next few weeks, this will be my bookshop's cookbook of the summer, which is a little award we love to give a koala stamp to the best book, because this is this book, I think, Carol, is how we are all going to cook over summer. The premise of it is that uh, 10 ingredients or fewer, everything to be cooked in half an well, hour. Well, that'll be unlike his other cookbooks, which I love, but you do he, have to do a do- lot of hunting and gathering. Carol, he does say that uh, he is taking he, he he's taking salt, pepper, olive oil, garlic and onion out of the equation. He's assuming that you already have those at home, but he is trying to stick to 10 or few ingredients. He does have a bit of a self-deprecating funny moment in the introduction. He says, all my friends went, what, a simple cookbook? Are you kidding? You're the most unsimple cook ever. We're all running around trying to get your ingredients. But he swears that this is the good 
you know, this is the way he's going to do it. I love this cookbook. It's from breakfast through to uh, puddings and uh, everything can be cooked within half an hour, although I'm a bit suspicious about some of the recipes. I think it might take longer. This one today, I thought we would celebrate the re-arrival of the asparagus. Yay, back in town, asparagus. And this is on page 82, and it's called Roasted Asparagus with Almonds, Capers and Dill. Sounds fabulous. And he says this is a dish his husband, Carl, cooks at home, but with, uses probably too much butter than Carl should have. So note, just note to everybody, if you want to get fat, put lots of, um, not that I'm saying Carl's fat, but he put lots of butter on. So you need 600 grams of asparagus with the woody ends trimmed, three tablespoons of olive oil, 30 grams of unsalted butter, 20 grams of flaked almonds, 30 grams of baby capers, and uh, pat dry them with the kitchen towel, the paper towel, 10 um, grams of dill roughly chopped, and salt and black pepper. So you heat the oven to about 200 degrees. You mix the asparagus with a tablespoon of oil, pinch of salt, um, pepper, and so on, and you arrange it on a large parchment-lined baking tray, uh, space the asparagus well apart and roast them for 8 to 12 minutes. Just keep touching them, Caro, so you don't overcook them. And when the asparagus is soft and starting to brown, transfer them to a large serving plate and put them to one side. Then you put the butter into the small saucepan, place on a medium-high heat. Once it's melted, you add the almonds, you fry them up for a minute or two until they're golden brown, and then you pop them on top of the asparagus evenly with the butter, lots of butter if you're Carl. Then you add the remaining two tablespoons of oil to the saucepan and place on a very high heat. And once it's hot, you add the capers and just fry them up for a minute or two. I love nothing more than capers in a meal like this. And you stir them continuously until the capers have opened up, become crisp. Use the slotted spoon, remove the capers from the oil and sprinkle them over the asparagus. And there's your beautiful dish. Discard the oil and serve warm. It sounds beautiful. I bought a beautiful asparagus plate. in the sh- you know, It's sort of a half moon shape. And um, at a French market a few years ago. So I'm going to make that and serve it on my asparagus plate. Thanks, Yotta. Ottolenghi Simple with the big yellow lemon on the front at forty nine ninety nine at all good bookstores. Apparently they've bought in 100,000 copies into Australia, so we won't be running out. remember when first one swept the summer and everyone was doing competitive salads. But that'll be a great one. Corrie, what are you grumpy about today? I am very grumpy about the anonymous... Um, person who wrote from the Trump administration who wrote the New York Times uh, controversial uh, op-ed this week about saying how the Trump administration is an absolute disaster. And, Caro, they refused to put his or her name on it. Come on, guys, whoever you are. Man up. Man up. Or woman. No, Man up. They've talked about, you know, they've said, to be clear, ours is not the popular resistance of the left. Okay, so who are you? And they talk about duty to country. If you believe your first duty is to your country, then go public, expose the mayhem, shoot up the town. A lot of people are denying that it's them, Corrie. Agitate the senior Republicans in Congress to join Democrats in the call for impeachment. Just go for it, whoever you are. So that is my grumpiness there. Time for six quick questions. Do you want to kick it off? I will. Speaking of politics, what's the best <laughs> political spray you've heard this year? Oh, Richard Di Natale last week, bar none, and his unmitigated... What did he say? I, did, I can't remember. Oh, you'll get it on YouTube. It, he, he just got up and delivered the greatest serve on the... Liberals. On the government. Oh, okay. And their behaviour, their childish behaviour, disgraceful, disgusting, you name it. In terms of setting a poor example, I won't go into details, but check out Richard Di Natale from the Greens and his spray. It was unbelievable. Corrie, you had a crack at activated almonds recently. What's your latest annoying food term? Ancient grains. (laughs) 
What the hell is an ancient what? grain? My friend Marcus, who came to stay a couple of weeks ago, Freaka, said, I think it, I think it's rice that you've had in the cupboard for too long and it's now full of weevils. <laughs> so I looked it up. Like grains are grains, aren't they? They come from um, the Neolithic Revolution of about 10,000 years ago when prehistoric communities started to make the transition from human hunter-gatherers to farmers. Okay, fair enough. That's ancient. We're gonna have I'll a look give at, you that thing. I'll give you one we're thing. We're going to have a look at words <laughs> next week. Anyway, I, can't, I don't know what it means. So good on you, ancient grains, whoever you are. What a marketing term bozos who come up with that. Caro, what's your favourite social issues-based advertisement this week? Well, there's been a few lately and there's, there's there are a few about gambling and, you know, the father saying to his son, just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean everyone's doing it and it's sort of a double entendre with sex and the new girlfriend, but it's actually about online gambling, which is good. But this is one of the more uncomfortable, awkward ads I have seen in a long time. It is actually uncomfortable to watch and that's why it's so good. The group of blokes sitting around a table and one of them takes a call from his girlfriend and he puts her down over the phone and has a go at her about money and says, hey, do not interrupt me when I'm talking to you and then something else and then he hangs up on her and all the blokes sit around and one of them finally says, man, that's not cool. And I reckon it is the best ad about male treatment of women I have seen in a oh, long time. I haven't time. seen that. Oh, it's, it's, it's so awkward it makes you want to squirm. Corrie, it's Sam Neill's birthday this week. He turned 71. What oh, is your favourite Sam? I know you 71. love him. I do. I love What's him. What's your favourite Sam movie? Death in Brunswick. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. 1990 black comedy with John Clark, bless him, and Zoe Caridis. That The scene where they go and bury the dead body of the chap who Sam has accidentally killed with a carving knife in the kitchen is John John Clark and Sam Neill carrying that body bag down to the and putting it in. <laughs> in, John in, in, in a, in a, so in a grave with somebody who's already there and then they're trying to tuck the other body up so they can fit them both is hilarious. You'll be very happy to note that David Stratton and our Margaret Pomerantz, our beloved, bring back their show, they gave it a four and a half star rating, Caro, so they're on the page with me as well. Caro, British Prime Minister Theresa May has been dancing in Africa this week, not she's once but on, twice. She's, she's done it again. <laughs> Good look or she's bad look for again. Theresa? Look, look I love the way she doesn't care and she has a crack. Me she too. looks like a big dag, but you know who doesn't on the day floor? But the but but well she was with, you know, at one point she was with scouts in Kenya, so it wasn't the day floor, but I think that music no, is I so infectious. That, it's no. so infectious, isn't it? I I would be I, I can't would be believe tapping my I can't toes. believe the backlash. I think it's horrible and I, so there's a reason why in movies people don't dance very often when you've got to know their character because you immediately cringe for them. But go and see Black Klansman. The dance scene in the club to I believe, I believe, I believe I'm falling in love is one of the more wonderful dance scenes I've ever seen. Well, Carol, we have to we all have to keep our eyes on Theresa May because she's under siege from Boris, who apparently is you know, mm, rat in the rank. Yes, exactly. What's your GLT, wants, Corrie? Wants the top job. My GLT this week, Caro, is an, a sister podcast, The Hilo. Our friend Anita put me onto this. She said, oh, these girls sound like you. Thanks, Neats, but they're about 25 years younger than Caro and I. It's a weekly pop culture news podcast out of the UK brought to us by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes who are two British journalists and culture vultures like you and I. But this particular – they've been off for a month because, of course, it's summer holidays over there. I've really missed them. But they came back last week and they uh, gave us their book recommendations. They'd both been reading all holidays and they've given us their book recommendations. All of these books are relatively new now. It is the best summary for books, the kind of books that you and I love. In amongst it, just a couple, Normal People by Sally Rooney – 
They also um, do a thing on Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan because they read that on their holidays. Um, one of them, talking about going back to old books, one of them did The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, which was a lovely review. Not to say that your Elena Ferranti wasn't, Caro. Uh, I, I think it was a, quite good until you said, oh, everyone knows about that. <laughs> so it's a really good, it is a really, really good podcast. And I love a good book podcast, which, Caro, is a segue to why you and I are starting our own book podcast in a few weeks. It's going to be wonderful, Corrie, your book club on podcast. And boy, have you lined up some big stars. Leanne Moriarty, Marcus Suzak, Laura Tingle, David Marr. Jocks are wrong. Jocks are wrong, your favourite. I bet you'll be there for that interview. Anyway, stay tuned for more on that. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for your company, Caro. Thank you, Corrie, and thank you to the Interchange Bench. Recruit the best staff with the Interchange Bench. You'll find links to them and details of everything we've talked about this episode in our show notes. You can email us, feedback at dontshootpod.com.au or get in touch via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or the Caro and Corrie Instagram account. Corrie? Don't shoot the messenger. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is made possible by The Interchange Bench. The Interchange Bench provides first-class temporary and contract talent. So when you need to get your team back in the game, call on The Interchange Bench. They provide temporary staffing, executive contracting, casual workforce management and volume recruitment from finance, events, communications, digital to office support at all levels. Someone sick or resigned? Expanding the company. Interchangebench.com.au For talent so good, you'd wish you can keep them.